0: We're going to look at Ephesians 5 in just a few minutes, Um, but I was thinking this morning how I should begin and what I should pray, because I always like to pray before I do anything, because we're told to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and surely one of the ways to walk by the Spirit as you teach is to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to come and help you. So that's why I always pray before I preach or teach. But as I was thinking, okay, we're going to look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians is a six-chapter book, and the first three plus are really foundational and glorious, which if you don't have chapter 5 about male and female in marriage will probably be interesting, but it won't hit home like it will if, if the first three chapters of Genesis, I mean Ephesians, <laughs> the first three chapters of Ephesians have become yours. And interestingly, there are two prayers in those three chapters, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 3. And, and they are among my favorite New Testament prayers, largely because they embody in the way they pray so much truth about God and so much truth about the way He relates to us. So I thought, well, there's probably a correlation then between whether we as a people are open to chapter 5 and what it teaches and whether we pray like this and that prayer is answered. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I, I bow my knees before You the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, asking that according to the riches of your glory, you might grant us here to be strengthened in the inner man by your power, and that Christ might dwell, might inhabit, might manifestly make his home now consciously in our hearts that we, being rooted and grounded in love, his love, your love, may have power to comprehend what is the height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, and be filled with all the fullness of God. And now unto to Him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we ask or think by the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations. Amen. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord did that? I mean, I don't know if you have language or experiences to correspond to be filled with all the fullness of God. That feels scary to me, frankly. I mean, I would explode, wouldn't I? If I were filled with all the fullness of the creator of the universe. I mean, that is an amazing prayer. Surely that's something like what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with all the fullness of God. So that prayer comes to a climax in verse 19 of chapter 3 with filled with all the fullness of God. We we Christians have an inheritance that is tasted now, and will one day be experienced beyond all our capacities here to imagine. You will be given the kind of body, it's called a spiritual body, and you will be given the kind of soul and heart that enables you to be filled with all the fullness of God and not explode someday. And we experience it in, in measure now. Uh, saying you'll be given a spiritual body prompts me to just go ahead and respond to this question that somebody gave me. Will we be male and female in heaven or in the age to come? Um, I think the way I would answer that is yes. (laughs) That's clear. Um, However, I want to make some qualifications. Jesus said there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage because we will be like the angels. Now, that kind of, hmm, are there male and female angels? Well, even if there weren't, that wouldn't necessarily mean that the analogy he was drawing cancels out our sexuality. We might be like angels in some ways and not every way. We certainly will be not like them in every way because angels did not get born with bodies. They may be given appearances as they show up here and there, but by and large, they're spirit beings, and we're not. We are embodied spirits, and we'll always be embodied spirits forever. I am not a Greek. I am a Christian. Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul. Christians believe in the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul. So you will be raised from the dead. Little babies will be raised, old Christians with gnarled bodies will be raised, and we will be given new bodies. And if the biblical pattern for the resurrection body is Jesus' resurrection body, then we learn some things, all right? He could appear through walls. He just showed up, and and he could vanish. That's not your ordinary body. And he ate fish in his mouth. And he had hands and said, put your finger here and your side. So he had a body and he was recognizable as Jesus. So there's continuity with this body. And yet it's a spiritual body that is, I think, suited perfectly for a new world. There will be a world, new heavens, new earth, but like this old earth, lion lying down with the lamb and that sort of thing. So all those pieces coming together, I say, yes, we will be who we are. I mean, if you were not woman, women and you were not men, men, you would be a kind of being that would not be recognizable. You'd have to so change, you wouldn't be you anymore, I think. I and mean, this is, the Bible doesn't go quite that far and say that explicitly. I'm just trying to infer an answer to that question. And I'm inclined to say, um, my wife will be a woman and I will be a man. And we will not relate to each other as husband and wife. Which is taught by Jesus in order to prevent polygamy in heaven for my dad. Right? My mom died. When my dad was 56, and he remarried a year later and was married for 25 years to Levon, and now everybody's dead, how are they relating in heaven? He had two wives. And Jesus, when he was confronted with that issue, said, you you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. In heaven, there will be no marriage nor giving in marriage. So they're relating, but I I do think my mother is, is a woman. (laughs) we have no conceptuality of any kind of human being that is not male or female. And the resurrection of the body has enough continuity that uh, I don't think she's androgynous, weird kind of in-between being, between male and female. That's a, a question that was asked me before I stood up here and I thought, since I mentioned spiritual body so that we won't explode when we are filled with all the fullness of God that would be a good place to address it there are other questions that are emerging we will have some time for Q&A later let's go ahead to Ephesians 5 so if you want to just read it up here that's fine or if you want to look at it in your own Bible that's fine also so we're going to read this and here's our task now here's what we're up to in this first session Um, I tried to defend uh, in the last session that in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 there are at least nine pointers to the fact that men and women in life relate with man bearing a unique responsibility for leadership, provision, and protection and the woman bears a unique honor and responsibility for blessing and honoring and nurturing that kind of leadership so that they complement each other and they grow together and accomplish things together, arm in arm, differently. Now, I argued that the fall, therefore, did not create headship and submission. Some people say it did. All this stuff, all this talk they say about man being leader and woman being follower is a result of sin. And I argued, no, it was there before. And sin really messes it up. So that people swing in solving the mess up. They swing away from the middle, which is where I want to. I conceive of myself, so here's the mess up, and I described it in in two ways for men and two ways for women. For men, they either become domineering, abusive, oafish, or they become passive, withdrawn, weak, dependent, and frustrate the living daylights out of their wives— beat their wives up. And and often men oscillate between those. They withdraw until they can't take it anymore then they lash out. And women are caught in that kind of horrible sinful oscillation between passivity and uh, abusiveness. Women are sinners and they Get it messed up by either being kind of a, a helpless, mindless coquette, you know, drop the handkerchief. Can you pick my handkerchief up? That you know that whole that whole stereotype of the the helpless, mindless woman, or becoming uh, totally domineering and controlling and exerting yourself and I'm as competent as you are, and. Etc. So th- those are the ways, plus others and all kinds of mixtures in between, that sin has messed this thing up. And some people solve it by swinging way over here to there are no significant personal differences. Egalitarianism would say let's all just be competency based. Do what you do according to what you're good at, not with reference to whether you're male or female. If you can pull a trigger, push a button, fly a jet, drop bombs, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or not, and so on. So, I'm not there. And I don't think that's where the Bible is, to say male and female is negligible when it comes to the roles we fulfill. So here, here in the middle... I'm calling it complementarity, which takes our differences, not just physiologically, but personally, takes them seriously, and then tries to discover from the Bible how that works, how they affect our lives. Now, I think Ephesians 5, and other texts, but especially Ephesians 5, is written by the Apostle precisely, to take these sin destructions and remedy them, and you need to decide, how does it do that? Does, does Ephesians 5 fix these sins and bring us into wholeness by taking us here to egalitarianism or taking us here to complementarianism? That's what you have to. That's what we're after now. In this next section, we're going to read this text, and we're going to talk about what is headship and what is submission, and and why are they talked about the way they are, and is it is it ugly or oppressive? Is it beautiful and like a ballet? All right, that's the agenda we have set for ourselves now. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I will eventually come back to that one another issue. I'll leave it aside for a while. I'll bring it up at the later. So don't don't fear that I'm I'm omitting verse twenty one as kind of the overarching lead in to this unit of scripture. Wives, to your own husbands, be subject to one another. Wives to your own husbands, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. So you got this subject issue here and then husband head so those are the counterparts subjection wife headship of husband as christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body <clears throat> verse 24 but as the church is subject to Christ, you know, I got the analogy. So uh, wives are now being compared to church as. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So now we have the, the other half of the pair. Christ, church and Christ, and, and Christ is compared then to husbands. So there's your, your twofold analogy. So he's describing the meaning of headship and submission in marriage as a comparison, an illustration of the way Christ carries out his covenant relation with his church, and the church lives in covenant relation with Christ. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think that verse, 25, is the most important verse for men, uh, married men in the Bible, apart from gospel texts that tell you how to get saved. That's our charter. It 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 overarches everything. It is huge. It is impossible. It is glorious. It is so full. It'll take a life to do it. Christ Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I'm going to close someday, I mean some hour when when we're done here. I hope hope it works out that I can close on the note of of how amazingly um, honoring the New Testament is to women. I hope I can strike that note because culturally and historically, Christianity has in fact proved to be that way. There are always marginal folks who are messing it up and leaving a bad reputation. But culture after culture have been amazingly transformed. You get a, a William Carey going to India and saying Well, we're not going to be culturally appropriate here. We're going to say that if you put a living wife on her husband's grave and stack bamboo on top of her and burn her alive when he dies, we're against that. (laughs) We don't, Christians don't do that to women. I don't care what your culture says that that's the way the church has has affected culture after culture around the world so don't don't think i mean we you see you live in a feminist culture so Christianity feels to you i mean complementarity feels to you like it's kind of pulling you back from some kind of liberty like Ugh, this is good whereas in most cultures women have been so completely oppressed that this this verse right here <laughs> i sat i got to be so careful here not to name the culture or even maybe uh, with a group of pastors in another continent okay be careful in a dark room with no electricity talking about these things I mean we were this is a, this is the biggest cultural cross I've ever made, okay? And I'm talking with these five pastors roughly about what I've seen in my ten days in the villages. I said, Now see if I can understand this. The women appeared to use these little short hose. First of all, I wonder why don't they have long hose? So that they don't have to work like this. Why don't you have a hole like this, like this? but it's this my western technology there's probably some good reason for that I don't know that was not the main issue I just saw all these women working in the fields all day some had babies on their back and I look around what are men where are the men what are they doing and, uh, and then end of day women are making the food same women working in the fields all day cooking a meal over fire, pot. Where, where are these men? What are they doing? And so I asked the pastors, what do men do here? And they said, uh, we make decisions. <laughs> we, we meet in council. I was like, all day? So now here I am, sticking my nose into another culture I don't know anything about how it works, what the dynamics are, being totally inappropriate, you know, western chauvinistic uh, you guys are crazy Uh, but I opened the Bible, these are pastors, and I I read this, I said I said uh, it just seems to me that you're treating your women like slaves they're working in the field all day they're caring for the babies and they're making the meals and and they said, well, we build the houses. We put up the houses with the big heavy boards. I said, well, that's good. I'm glad you do that. So my, the point I'm making is I think Christianity has a message that affects culture. It just happens to be we live in America, and it appears to that it needs to pull American culture in a direction that is a little different maybe than it would pull that culture or certain forms of Islamic culture and so on. So I pause there to say all that because this verse feels to me as a husband like the weightiest, most difficult, highest charter for my life. This is my main job. My main job is not to get Noel to be submissive. My main job is to love like Christ and believe that will bring out of her all that is godly and good. He gave himself up for her. He died. So where are you dying for your wife? What aspects of things are you dying to for her? How are you dying in your leadership? 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. This leadership that Jesus is exercising here is not oppressive. It is bringing this church, church wife, his wife is the church, bringing her to glory. To be a beautiful, totally satisfied display of his greatness. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, so, in that way, husbands ought to love their own wives, and now shifts, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. He's arguing in a new way now. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two shall be joined to his wife and 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 they shall be joint and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. so there's the basis of that little argument: He who loves his wife loves himself, why? because they're one flesh. You treat your wife well, you're treating yourself well, it's going to work better. Treat her like your own body, you hurt your own body, you beat your own body. You, you belittle your own self? No. Well, don't do it to her either. It's just applying to marriage. Love your neighbors. you love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 32. This mystery. He's referring back now to this mystery quote from Genesis 2. This is Genesis 2, 24. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I think what that verse means in relation to that quotation from the Old Testament is what's mysterious here. You know, the meaning of mystery in the New Testament is not something that Mainly, that's hard to understand, but something that is concealed for a season and then revealed. And the mysteries are made plain in the New Testament that have been concealed. And one of the mysteries in the Old Testament is, what, what was that about? The two leaving mother and father becoming one flesh. And he says, what it was about was Christ and the church. And that, of course, was not known until Christ and the church showed up. There were hints in the Old Testament that God related to Israel as his bride. That's not infrequent. But the thought that God would relate through Messiah to church made up of Jew and Gentile as husband to bride was off the charts in the Old Testament. That was too Absolutely amazing. Jew and Gentile, one body united to Messiah in one flesh union, dying for her. So the mystery here is that marriage, as God designed it in Genesis 2.24, represents all along and today all the more intentionally and clearly Christ and the church. Which is why this issue matters a lot. I mean, that's one of the many reasons why it matters so much. If we get headship and submission wrong in marriage, I think we will run the risk of obscuring the display of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And that's the main reason marriage exists. God could have made babies any way he wanted. He could have populated the world through, you know, the way earthworms do it if he wanted to but he didn't. He created this marvelous thing. First of all, he conceived two human beings, equal in dignity, equally in his image, very different both in their physiological and their personal orientation on life, male and female. He created a thing called marriage. He did it with a view to displaying how his son would relate to the church. Therefore, our task is to figure out how to do marriage in a way that displays Christ and the church, which is a huge calling that almost... Nobody in the world thinks about. And even even secular people are to have marriages that display Christ in the church. God set things up that way. Verse 33, last verse. Nevertheless, each individual among you, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as... Himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I'm tempted to linger here on, on these two things because Noel and I have just recently started reading a book. So I can't judge as to how good the book is going to be. So don't hear this as a, um, an advertisement for the book beyond our ability to give it an advertisement because we've only read about 20 pages. But I feel like pausing to just give you a little personal insight at this point. My One of my daughters-in-law wrote me an email a few weeks ago that said she had read this book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich. Uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that last name right. I uh, called Love and Respect. And that it had helped her a lot. She she liked the book a lot and had gotten insight into their marriage. My son and, and uh, she have been married for what, 11 years, I think. And uh, so I wrote back to her and I said, I've ordered the book. Because if it means that much to you, I want to get into it, understand you better, help my marriage grow like you're growing, and... Uh, that's part of the way I'm relating to my grown sons right now. Is, as they're growing, I'm trying to grow. And as they're discovering things about marriage that are troubling, they're looking at me like, uh, is that the same way you and Mom? And is that why we are the way we are? And, uh, and so, I mean, this is really very, all very serious to me. So that's one way I'm trying to be in their lives. So I got the book, and, uh, and I said to Noel, I took her out to lunch, and I said, uh, our daughter-in-law, I named her, uh, Said, uh, this book helped, and what would you think if we read it together? And and we just sit on the couch, and I'll, you read, I read. We'll read out loud to each other, and and uh, she said, sure. Said, when will we find the time? <laughs> I said, we'll we'll carve out we'll carve out half an hour, an hour on Monday, and when we don't have elders' meeting on Tuesday night, we'll we'll do some Tuesday night, and then uh, if we. If we can, just on Thursday. So we'll find an hour or two a week to, to do this. So we've begun, and we've sat twice so far in the last week um, and, and read about 20 pages out loud. It's all built on this verse. The whole book is built on this verse. And uh, I don't want to say anything too positive or too negative. About, about the book because it 's way too premature to be negative uh, and and i, I don 't want to be overly positive i just I want to learn and uh, give me another little personal thing here um, that I, I hope will help you. Um, my son, one of my sons, said to me, "You know I, I think our family is pretty critical We're, we grew up to be critical, and you taught us to Discern and if we see flaws in your place, note them and don't be sucked in by them and so on. So be critically discerning in culture and when you read a book and when you hear a sermon. And, and I wonder, Daddy, if that hasn't gone too far so that we feel ourselves as a family maybe unable to learn from people because we see so many flaws in the world. It's kind of a very gentle little, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I took it. I did. I just didn't want to rebel against that at all because I think he's probably right. I, I, I said, oh, I think you're probably right. That I, I, I have set that tone in this family that I am so quick to spot error and, and incoherence in argument and flawed reasoning and lousy factual demonstration that the feel you get is not, we are really profiting from this book, but rather, we're spotting errors in this book. That's our job. And, and that's a, that can be a pride thing when you're unwilling to learn, even from those where you see some problems. So I said to Noel, that, I told her that he had said that, and I said, I think think we're like that. And uh, kind of, therefore, come to a book like this, feeling like, maybe it can teach us something. (laughs) Which I'm not happy about. So I said, let's try to totally not talk about the negative things we see in this book. You, we know we're going to see them because you and I are hypercritical people. My wife is better at it than I am even, I think, in spotting foolishness in the world. And uh, and so we, we, we made that resolution. Uh, we will learn what is helpful here, and we will just not... Dwell on what is problematic. So I commend that. I don't want you to be gullible people, okay? But don't be so non-gullible that you can't learn from anybody. Let's be, let's be a people who are mature and balanced. And when we read a book, we see the problems, but we also see good things. And we you know, test all things, hold fast to what is good. That's, a, that's from the Bible, right? So here we come to the last verse and he says that he has found and wrote a whole book about it, quit his ministry, his his pastorate, in order to do full-time love and respect. He gets it here. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And he says that uh, what he has found is that These two failures to do this cause the other not to happen. So when when a wife fails to manifest respect to her husband, he shrivels up in this, and vice versa. And it gets into what he calls a crazy cycle. She's not loving him. He's not respecting. He's not loving her. She's not respecting him. And it just gets worse and worse. Who can break out? I think that's a pretty good analysis of what happens to a lot of us. And isn't it interesting? I mean, here I'll just tell you one of my gut, my gut negative responses right away is, "But aren't wives supposed to love their husbands, and aren't husbands supposed to respect their wives?" <laughs> In other words, isn't this simple? And, and I realize I'm really asking that question of the Apostle Paul. Because it's Paul who chose to end this paragraph with this distinction. Didn't he? He said, Wives, uh, husbands, love your wife. And he said, Wives, respect your husband. He, he could have said, Love each other and respect each other. He could have said that. That's true. Surely, husbands are not to disrespect their wives, and wives are not to fail to love their husbands. But what he chose to emphasize was precisely what this book is emphasizing, namely love and respect, love and respect. And so we should just ask ourselves, what is it about women and men that would kind of summon that distinction? And what is the distinction? I could go on and on with my initial responses to this book here, but I think I'll. We've got to make some progress here. Um, here's where we're going now. We want to unpack what we've just seen and ask what is headship and what is submission. That's what we're after here now. We try to define it biblically. I would have erased these little red things here, but if you leave it on for a year, it won't go away. <laughs> so, sorry about that. I should make new, new, new uh, overheads. I've taught this course every two years for the last two or three years. The divine, here's my definition of, of headship on the basis of what we just read in Ephesians 5. The divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like, loving, servant leadership... Protection and provision in the home. I see all those pieces in Ephesians 5. The divine calling, because it's God's word, of a husband to take primary responsibility, not sole responsibility, for Christ-like, do it like Christ, loving, love your wives, servant, he died for her, Washed her feet. Leadership, head. Protection, he died to save her from sin. Provision, he nurtures her in the home. So I think all all those pieces in that definition are there in Ephesians 5. Unpack it a little bit. Both words are crucial. Primary responsibility, primary not soul, responsibility not rights, burden bearer, not boss. I want to strike the note when I think of headship as one who is charged to bear a burden, not given rights to be bossy. So if a man's heart is wrong, if your heart is wrong, men, when you hear this word headship you'll probably go the rights route rather than the responsibility route. It'll change everything. If you sit there saying, oh, good, I have a right to tell her to do this, I have a right to tell her to do that. Instead of feeling, whoa, this is a burden. This is weighty. That I am responsible now to lead this family into truth and godliness and holiness and beauty and love and joy and fruitfulness and everybody growing up into their fullness of potential and the wife flourishing and the children being noble adults someday. That's my job mainly. That's very different than saying, "We have got some rights here. Do some bossing. Totally different. Totally different. This is a calling on a man that is very heavy, which is why so many don't pick it up. It's heavy. They just want to, they work a tail off at work, they come home, they're tired. They don't want to take responsibility for the devotions They want to take responsibility to play with the kids. They don't want to take the responsibility to sit down and talk about giving to the church. They're just tired. It's a burden to be a leader. Just do it. Just, Just let me just sit here. I'm tired. He falls asleep on the couch at 630. So many won't bear the responsibility of of leadership, implied here in Ephesians in the concept of husband as head of the body. Contrast the notion of head, a source. I'm going to come back to that later. Some people say head doesn't mean leader, guide, uh, initiative taker. It means source. I'll come back when I get to objections. Implied in, in the corollary that the wife is to submit. So I'm arguing that leadership is implied in the word head and the correlating word Submit. So if man is called to be head and she's called to submit, then head implies guide, lead, take this family somewhere. And she'll follow, she'll be thrilled to follow if you take it in a a godly direction with loving servant leadership. It also follows also by the fact that Christ was the leader of his disciples and is the leader of the church who submits to him as leader. Note, servanthood does not nullify leadership. It defines the method of leadership. I'm responding to an objection here that I've heard over the years. When some egalitarians hear complementarians defend headship in the home as the role of leadership leadership, And the wife is submitting. They say, no, 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 no. Jesus modeled servanthood. As though servanthood was somehow the opposite of leadership. And, of course, everybody knows that's not the case. There is domineering, ugly leadership, and there's servant leadership. And this text here, which is often cited, I think illustrates that. Here's, here's, I could give you the name of, of a couple of egalitarians who have confronted me on this issue, and they've used this text. So here's what they say. Here's what Jesus did. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Hear the spirit of this, what he doesn't like about that. But it is not this way with you, you disciples of mine. But the one who is greatest among you must become the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. And he washed their feet took the form of a slave. And and that text is used to say piper men are not called to be the leaders of their home they're called to be servants in their home like that. And I see. Why is this either or in your head? I don't understand why you're doing this. And the and my 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 basic response is to say picture this. Jesus is on his knees He's taken off his outer garment. He's taken up a towel. He looks like a slave. He's on the ground. He's got a bowl of water. He's taking each of his apostles' feet, including Judas, and washing it. And I ask, is there any doubt in any of these disciples' minds at that moment who the leader is in this room? No doubt. No doubt. So don't buy that. Don't buy that argument or that contrast. Just define leadership that way. Jesus didn't come to blow headship out of the water or blow leadership out of the water. He came to define it and transform it. So all the sin-destroying aspects of headship that we've seen, men being cruel and abusive and oafish and domineering and heartless and enslaving, he says, no to that form of leadership. But in transforming it, he doesn't dispense with it. There is a way to to take a family somewhere that's on your knees. Modeling. Not demanding. Leading by example. Leading by sacrifice. Leading by tenderness. Leading by love. So when I I say servant-like leadership... I'm partly responding to a criticism and just partly drawing out the the implications of what's there. So leadership is one aspect of headship, and then I've named protection as another one. I think that word, that concept, protection, from a husband to a family, is implied in the death of Christ for the church to save her from the destroying effects of sin. His death for her was not merely a demonstration of sacrificial love. It was love because it protected, it saved. So he's the savior of the body. A savior of the body. Meaning the body was about to be eaten by the lion. Lion prowls around seeking someone to devour. Jesus inserts himself between the lion and the body, and he dies for the body, and at great cost to himself, he protects and rescues his bride. So I think that's implied in headship. Men feel by their redeemed nature, their true nature, that they should put themselves between wife and danger. So I don't know how egalitarians think about this. I get upset about it when I think about it too much. But if I'm lying, I mean, my wife and I have a double bed in a little bedroom. And I always sleep on the door side of the bed wherever we go. Now, I can only sleep on my left side. I don't know why that is. That's true for about 15 years now. I can't sleep on my back. I can't sleep on my right side. I can't sleep on my stomach. But I go right to sleep on my left side. Must be something with my heart or something. I don't know what it is. Uh, Which means in some motel rooms, hotel rooms, I'm not lying in the direction I want to lie when I'm going to sleep. Because I'm on the door side. And that's just part of my headship. That's the way I work it out. Anybody comes through that door dealing with me first. That's the way I think about it. Somebody breaks in this house. So if... I don't know, should we really get to the point where we say, it's your turn to go see what that creaky noise was? <laughs> I saw what that creaky noise was last night. I, I think it's okay to do that with crying kids. <laughs> <laughs> Which means the man has to take his turn, right? She's not breastfeeding anymore, you can do it. <laughs> And I did it thousands of times, believe me. One of the hardest things about not killing your kids is (laughs) getting up in the middle of the night for the third time. Sick baby. I think protection is built into manhood and modeled by Jesus Christ. And part of what headship means. And the last one is provision implied in the nourishing and cherishing that Christ does For the church, his own body, as an analogy of what the husband is to do for his own body, his wife. That raises a lot of questions about breadwinning. Can wife work? Well, of course she can. She's always worked every culture women have worked in, a, in an agrarian society it was just obvious right you got a farm wife's working her fingernails off every day doing what wives do and husband's working his rear end off and, and they're they're putting bread on the table together so here we are in a western technological society where it's very complicated because women can do everything men can do roughly in this society <clears throat> push as many buttons type as many keys write as many notes, sit as many desks, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so, who works and who doesn't? Um, what I'm saying is, a man feels, senses, a primary responsibility for the provision of the home. How they work out the details of their relative and earning power is is not, I don't think, dictated by the Bible. What a wife wants from her husband is not necessarily that he makes her work or forbids her from working, but that that, that he takes initiative to see that it all works. And that if, his, if her heart is to be free from that, to make a home, then he helps that happen. And if her heart is to pursue a career, then he works that out with her. And when kids come along, I think there we do have some biblical wisdom about a wife being there for those children. Um, And so the issue is going to change a little bit when children come along. But I don't want to be picky. I don't want to draw too many uh, hard and fast rules there, except to say when it comes to do we have enough money to live on, the man should feel the primary responsibility for getting that worked out. And, and he shouldn't, drawing in the servant leadership by saying, okay, you go to work, I'm just going to try to write a book here at home, you know, um, that sort of thing. It, um, I think the man needs to take more responsibility than that. I wrote here in a note to myself, what is lost if complementary vision of marriage is lost? Marriage mirroring Christ and the church. This is probably a good place to take a break, uh, and we'll do a little bit of Q. Not not break. Uh, we'll do some Q and A here, and then we'll come back and finish this up in a minute. But let me let me just pray that God would take what we've seen so far, Father. Please help us think through this right now. Come and give us a docile humble slant toward your word. Take away all pride from our lives and and give us the willingness to learn what it means to be man and woman here I pray. In Jesus' name.